to Eye on Horror, the official podcast of iHorror.com. This is episode 61, otherwise known as season four, episode four. Uh, I am your host, James J. Edwards, and with me yet again is your other host, Jacob Davison. How are you doing, Jacob? Doing good. Feeling really comfy in my brand new Don't Panic Dinosaur Pajamas. By the time I got there, it was all extra small. I'm like, oh, I guess my dog can get pajamas, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, no. As soon as I saw that that was like the surprise Valentine's Day release, I was like, man, I definitely want to dress up as the as the dude from Don't Panic who's running around in dinosaur pajamas throughout the entire movie. And uh, also with us uh, yet again is your other other host, John Korea. How you doing, Korea? See, this is this is one of the this is one of those things where I'm actually it makes me a little bit glad that I don't have a lot of spare money at the moment because I totally would have bought that and would have. But it would be one of those things where I'm like, this is a really cool, dumb purchase, but I would never wear I wouldn't wear it that often, you know, like just because like. For me, at least, it would be like a couple times worn thing, and then that would be it. So I'm a little glad, but also even better, I got really sad recently because I thought I wasn't going to be able to afford to buy the Alex de la Iglesia uh, releases from Severin, and I got really sad. I was trying to like figure out money wise, like how can I get this, and then I I found out I realized I already pre-ordered the March package (laughs) way back in December. I was like, oh, that's one of the reasons why I almost have no money right now is because I already pre-ordered it. So I I feel great. That was a a great revelation this morning was that I already have some awesomeness coming my way. You got to keep track of your pre-orders, man. Especially since I'm moving soon. Oh, I got to move all that stuff around. And and also, these were relatively inexpensive. I mean, it was only 25 bucks for uh, the shirt and pants, which, you know, compared to pajamas. Yeah, no, I mean, that's pretty, pretty inexpensive, really. That's what I noticed when I when I was shut out of buying them because, you know, I'm I I have the COVID-19, so I couldn't fit into extra small. Yeah, right. Uh, But um, yeah, they're they're cheaper than a pair of Cavity Colors joggers. Yeah, that was my thought, too. But Cavity Colors joggers are totally worth it. And I told you guys I oh, got no, another they pair, absolutely right? are. I was uh, making a statement about how inexpensive the pajamas were, not how expensive Cavity Colored joggers are. I've got two pairs, too. Yeah. Uh, such quality on both ends. Love it. Please give us more casual wear to wear at home on the couch. <laughs> yes. With an elastic waistband because I have the COVID-19. <laughs> I, it's, it's called the COVID-15. You got to be careful, James. For a second, I thought you actually, you were like, yeah, because I had the COVID-19. And I'm like, bud, what? Are you okay? The COVID-19 is, is it's 19 pounds. I actually, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more than 19 pounds. I, I don't step on scales because it makes me want to play in traffic. Oh, well, if you want, <laughs> bud, you can join me on my 75 day challenge. It is miserable and I hate everything, but. What is it? Is it like a cleanse? Uh, no, it's uh, two forty-five uh, for seventy-five days. It's two forty-five minute workouts, one of which has to be outside, which is a bitch when you have work and stuff. And all of a sudden, like for me, it kept getting to like, oh shit, it's ten thirty at night. I haven't done forty-five minutes outside, so I go outside for a forty-five minute walk. Which my neighborhood is, eh, depending on what street you're on, uh, that late. Uh, and then like read ten pages of a book, uh, you know, and like a bunch of other things. Don't eat after eight. You know, it's just more like just trying to make sure like setting good like you know it's it's going a little extreme in order to set good like habits is what i keep telling myself i would just take loomis on the 45 minute walk every day and he would love that and that would tire him out too this little he he's seven months old today and he is a little terror oh yeah he yeah he's he's cute until he 
wakes you up at four in the morning. I still have that poison oak rash going, and uh, <laughs> that's been keeping me up. Uh, just waking up to ravishing my legs with my nails, just like, ugh. Ooh, that's some body horror. Yeah. We usually start the show off by talking about what we've been doing, but I don't think this is what people <laughs> signed up for. <laughs> been scratching the shit out of myself. So what has been going on? Jacob got pajamas, and uh, you got poison oak, and I have a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting mix. Yeah. Um. Although in terms of uh, stuff I've been watching, um, they just added uh the entire Muppet Show to Disney Plus, so yes. I've just been binging Fuck, that. Yeah, they did. Yeah, and th- this is horror related because you know when I was growing up and you know as a kid, I used to rent the uh, Monster Last with Vincent Price VHS uh, Muppet Show. Uh, thing from like blockbuster all the time because you know back then you could only rent like vhs's which only had like maybe two episodes tops of a show so i'd get that one all the time because it had the vincent price episode and the alice cooper episode which were i was gonna say there's an alice cooper episode that's pretty uh horror-y yeah yeah and it was it was both of them so i would watch them back to back and i yeah no i love those episodes because you you know you had vincent price uh doing as vincent price does and like he go he, he like has an inside the actor studio thing with kermit the frog and uh, the Alice Cooper's episode is great because he keeps on trying to tempt the Muppets into signing away their souls. Like it's just, it's just such a funny episode. That era Alice Cooper is awesome because he was like supposedly this counterculture icon. And this was technically when he went solo, the Welcome to My Nightmare years. It was the name of a band yep. up until that point. But he was supposedly this this shock rocker, but he would be on like Hollywood Squares or he'd be in the Bob Hope Golf Classic or he'd be on the Muppet Show. I saw an interview with him where he said that um, he saw it as Alice Cooper being behind enemy lines. But I think he just really liked to be a celebrity, you know, Uh, maybe a little column A, a little column B, maybe. But yeah, no, just it's been great rewatching the Muppet show. And yeah, there's, yeah, you know, just a lot of great uh, guests and bits. And, you know, and just, you know, I'm there for the Muppets and the monsters. Always fun. Oh, yeah. Like, like the sketch where all the furniture starts coming alive and eating people. I love the Muppets so much. And I'm so excited to finally be watching season four and five because they were never released on video. Uh, And they've actually done a really good job of like having them uh, pretty complete. I think there's only like a few segments taken out of a couple episodes. And there's only from what I can see, two episodes missing overall uh, completely. One, I believe, is just purely music rights. And then the other one, the the guest star didn't really have a great it's probably best not to have his episode on uh for what he did yeah let's eh, let's not go into that but either way yes. yeah are they in a three four aspect ratio or are they yeah. yes they yes, are, they okay, are. That's yes good. original format that's good. as soon as they went live that was the first thing i did i went straight to the harry belafonte episode it was like this <laughs> in the right fucking aspect <laughs> ratio harry belafonte episode is my favorite and I think it's one of the great examples of uh, Turn the World Around. The Muppets version, Muppet Show version of Turn the World Around is, I think, superior to the original recording. But anyways, we're off horror now. Did um Is the Harry Belafonte one the one with the lime and the coconut song? Or is that a different episode? He does Deo, uh, Turn the World Around. Uh, and I think that's it. It must be a different episode. I, I, I distinctly remember Muppets doing the lime and the coconut song. But anyway. Korea, what 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 have you been doing besides watching the Muppets? <laughs> I've been getting very uh, <laughs> satanic recently. I uh, there's a, a British museum called the Last Tuesday Society. Um, they're uh, an oddities museum, and they 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 see, seem to have a really cool space. I've never been there, uh, but they've been hosting uh, these panels and webinars on Zoom. 
Uh, they're relatively cheap to attend. I think it's under 10 bucks or so. But I attended my first one with them, uh, which was called Satanic Feminism. And I had no clue what I was walking into uh, or tuning into with that. And it was one of the best um, webinars I've attended since, you know, these pandemic webinars have been going on. You know, reading that title can be interpreted many different ways. Uh, but what it was about was about uh, historical figures that practice a form of feminism using uh, satanic ideology and uh, symbolism for their cause. So a lot of times... For example, um, one of the ways that the patriarchy is being is held up is the use of Adam and Eve and saying stuff like, you know, Eve can't be trusted because, you know, so because of that, women can't, you know, uh, satanic feminism uses the opposite and saying that, well, you know, it's that basic satanic um, belief that Lucifer gave ma uh, mankind knowledge and thus is actually good. Uh, much like Prometheus, how Prometheus is praised. And so with that, you know, so there's a lot of really cool um, history and uh, it was very interesting, very dense. Uh, I definitely had to pay attention for a lot of it, but it was very how informative. How old is the book? Uh, that book came out in, I believe, 2014. Uh, oh, so okay. It was, so it's still in print uh, and I actually, I have mine ordered. Uh, it's going to get here someday. And they're doing a follow-up where they're going to talk about modern, because this one went through the 1800s. They stopped right around the suffragette movement, which was very interesting because the suffragette movement did embrace um, the satanic feminist movement in that, you know, they, they had them in it. But once the suffragettes started to court the tempests, to grow their numbers and move their movement forward, they kind of sidelined and rejected uh, the satanic feminists. Um, but it was, it was very interesting because it was also like a 45 minute presentation. And at the end of it, you know, we all had uh, these questions and, and Pax, uh, Per made uh, the point that none of these people were really that successful. Like they all had these ideologies, they all had these things, but they, it never fully caught on. So it was really interesting hearing these people who had these uh, views that uh that were so adamant about it but like never it never got like huge national publicity and stuff so it was, it was really uh interesting and it uh they ended the talk the owner of the last tuesday society with about a 20 minute uh bedtime story because where they are in england it was nighttime so uh you get a lot of bang for your buck and the money goes towards keeping the museum open uh as well so all around, like if you, if you if you ever get a chance, I would highly recommend checking out uh, the Last Tuesday Society and attend one of their webinars because they're informative and entertaining as fuck. <laughs> cool. I have been um, continuing my my descent into TV series, um, not so much movies. Um, I have started rebinging The Sopranos, which um, this is probably my fourth time through. And what makes me want to rewatch it, I've, I've discovered this. The most effective parts of The Sopranos for me have always been the deaths, the killings. They're always, they're, they're just so, they, I mean, some of them are just people getting shot in the head, but other ones, they're just, there's more to it than that. And that's what actually made me want, you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but there's one execution where, um, and it's actually pretty early in the series where Tony, um, it, it's a guy who tried to kill one of his associates. So he brings him to this um, snack bar and um, and he gets him to tell him what he knows. And then he says, uh, so actually I said, I didn't want to spoil it, but I'm going to, because this is over 20 years old anyway. And he says to, you know, he, he goes, I'm thirsty. So he gives him a diet soda and he drinks it and he goes, 
He goes, how is that? He's like, oh, it's, it's fine. He goes, are you sure that diet uh, soda is the last taste you want to have in your mouth? And he just blows him away. And it's the things like that, that, I mean, they're, the, Tony Soprano is so ruthless in how he does things. And that's what makes me want to watch the whole series over again. And I'm about halfway through this new watch. Um, but the one movie that I have watched since last time we talked is a Shudder exclusive called Shook. Either you guys seen Shook? I uh, haven't seen it, but I did see the trailer. It's kind of interesting. I was when, going into it. I was expecting something kind of like host and it's not unlike that. But what it is, it's about a social influencer who um, for reasons that are spelled out in the first scene, she opts out of a live stream that some of her influencer friends are doing. Um, to take care of her sister's dog and shit goes crazy from there. And it's really interesting the way that it's presented because a lot of it is screen stuff because she's watching their live stream while she's taking care of this dog. So she'll be sitting on a couch in a dark room with her computer in front of her. And then her friend's live stream will be projected on the wall behind her. So you see what she's seeing, but you also see her watching it. It's really interestingly done. And then there will be like chat room stuff that will just appear in things that she's looking at. So it's, it's, it was pretty cool the way that they did it. It was um, not, I mean, not like host host was like, you know, hit record on a zoom session and go, but this was um, they, they just superimposed things sort of, sort of like searching, I guess, but also I've seen other movies do it as well, but it's pretty well done. It's um, there's a few moments in it where you're just sitting there going, come on, you know, it's like, it gets to that point in a few places because it takes a few left turns. But I mean, if you go into it just expecting, it's kind of like a modern day slasher, I guess. But it's um, if you go into it, you know, expecting the unexpected, it's pretty enjoyable. Did it leave you shook? <laughs> <laughs> they do do the Peter Griffin thing where they say the name of the movie. It's it's pretty early on, and she goes, "This whole thing's just got me kind of shook." It's like ah ah ah. She said it ah. <laughs> got, got the title line. <laughs> was it upright citizens brigade that had the skit where this guy's like oh yeah i had the title line in that movie what yeah i had the title line in star wars what do you mean and he like brings in this clip and it's like, yeah yeah it was upright and he's brigade. like oh man i'm just so tired of all these star wars yeah yeah, yeah i remember that bit I, I read an article a guy who um who live stream or live tweeted his screening of i frankenstein and um and when it gets to the end where he says i frankenstein you know he says all movies should end with by saying the name of the movie and um this was i think 2014 so he's like sandra bullock it sure is great to feel that gravity amy adams this has been an american hustle you know he's like going through all these different ways that people could say the name of their movies man it really was a cannibal holocaust wasn't it <laughs> and all this happened on halloween <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of title drop or movies I'd use the title drop um, I, I also recently watched uh, the new Nicolas Cage movie Willy's Wonderland ooh how was that well look you know it was a movie that <laughs> promised Nicolas Cage fighting evil animatronic animals and it gave me a movie where Nicolas Cage fights evil animatronic animals so I liked it <laughs> just anytime how was the movie well you know just anytime you start off with that it's just like oh man <laughs> but it sounds like it delivered exactly what it promised yeah exactly that's that's the point i'm trying to make it delivered on the promise so you know i, I got to see nicholas cage beat the ever-loving fuck out of uh, evil animatronic weasels Listen, I wasn't I wasn't looking for a Citizen Kane with that premise, you know, so I, as long as it delivers on what it 
what it promises, I'll, I'll be happy to watch it. Yeah. And I was happy to watch it. It was fun as fuck. Yeah, but no, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I also had a lot of great creature uh, effects work. Uh, so, no, yeah, I'd recommend it. Um, and one other screening I wanted to bring up, uh, it, it was the fifth anniversary of one of my favorite uh, screening series in Los Angeles and now online, uh, Cinematic Void. And I was actually at the first, so it was, it was very fitting that they decided to replay uh, the first movie they ever screened. Uh, Canon Films Hospital Massacre, a.k.a. X-Ray, which is also inexplicably a Valentine's Day horror movie. It's, it's just like a pure canon slasher. You know, it's like it's Valentine's Day. It's a hospital. You got a bunch of Valentine's theme slash uh, medical theme kills and stuff. And like there's a doctor slasher. So it, it's it's just a lot of fun. And it just really encapsulates the spirit of Cinematic Void. And what I remember most about that movie is Barbie Benton in a hospital smoking the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She smokes all the time. And, you know, it's the hospital. There are sick people around. But it was an 80s hospital. Hospital, you know, anything goes. Also, in a Cannons film, you know, that, you know, it's like there's a vat of acid just hanging on a shelf without a lid. You know, it's like, you know, it's a, there's no rules. Uh, I love Cannon films. Yeah. Yeah. The Cannon film slashers are pretty special in their own way. Now, uh, I have a few that I just want to throw out real quick. I finally watched Mansfield 6667 going with my Satanic Week, you know, and, uh, it was really good. Um, I, it was uh, the interviews were really good. They got some really interesting people. A lot of uh, critical uh, feminist scholars uh, thrown in with John Waters and Peaches Cream. Uh, Tippy Hepburn's interviewed with it a bit. It's very informative and uh, it's very interesting. Just the dynamic of being a star for because you're a star. You know, that type of culture that we're very much so in now with uh, p- people who are just famous for being famous. Kardashians. Uh, yeah. You know, and Paris Hilton. Yeah. Influencers. Yeah. And Mansfield was one of the originals. So it was it was very interesting doing that deep dive into her life, uh, which I really enjoy and uh, highly recommend. I also going with Satan uh, finally watched Hammers. The Devil Rides Out. And I am so disappointed in myself for not watching this sooner because this has to be my favorite Hammer film now. It is so good. The movie just jumps right into it. You got Christopher Lee being the good guy and just taking on the satanic cult. And it is absolutely phenomenal. It is nice and tight. It The practicals are a lot of fun. There's a lot of really fun aesthetic looks with it. The cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous. I highly recommend any, any and everybody like buy that Scream Factory Blu-ray or at the very least watch it on Shutter because The Devil Rides Out is just so much fun. Gonna put that on my watch list. Definitely. And another one I regret not watching sooner was uh, Abel Ferreira's Body Snatchers. You guys. Oh, yeah. One, right? I love that movie. I, for some reason, just never gave it a shot. Uh, I, I never was like, oh, fuck that movie. But like the idea of a 90s Body Snatchers movie did not fully appeal to me. So I finally watched it and I had, oh man, not only did that movie have so much good practical effects and body horror in it, but like it, it took this like very global idea and really made it intimate and keeping it in a small town. There were some not so subtle things about conformity and the- Yeah, the military base. Yeah, the military industrial complex and yeah. all that. But it, it, it was very effective and it got me uh, to read- uh, Roger Ebert's original review of it and 
uh and it was so interesting just to read one of his because he he famously was not a horror fan at all and um but he loved that movie and really praised the ending saying it did what most horror movies can't and that's uh stick the landing and have a very effective ending and it it what dude that helicopter scene was intense oh yeah yeah that's another one where it's like hey if that's been on your list for a while please pop it in because it is phenomenal oh and speaking of stuff on the list for a while i finally saw life last week oh as in alien meets uh yeah jake Venom. Hall yeah. in space <laughs> yeah. with uh ryan reynolds i thought you were talking about like a uh, uh, david attenborough <laughs> documentary <laughs> different life when people say life i think of the eddie murphy jail movie first <laughs> so yeah it, it took me a second there's, there's a look. bunch of them but uh no i saw the yeah, extraterrestrial life movie and yeah no actually it was better better than i would have expected it's really solid yeah i enjoyed it yeah because like i remember you guys talking about it and saying how good it was and just it's like oh you know i'll get around to it eventually and then you know some four years later i finally watched it and yeah it was solid i'm, I'm surprised it didn't get more praise yeah it was definitely one of those ones where it wears its influence on its sleeve. You know, yeah, you can definitely yeah. see the influence of Alien and Venom and all that. But it does it does enough of a like original take on it that, you know, and it's and it's effective. Like there's some scenes in that that are truly like. Ugh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There are some brutal kills in there. All right. Let's uh, move on to our topic because our topic is a guest. We have a special guest this week. Um this is cinematographer Nick Junkersfeld. How you doing, Nick? I'm really well. How are you guys doing? Doing, doing great. Excellent. Yeah, doing good. Nick is the director of photography on the new Wrong Turn reboot. Is it is it a reboot or a sequel? It's a it's a little of both, isn't it? I've heard reboot and reimagining. Okay. Uh, so I wouldn't call it a sequel, but you know I've heard it it uh, written as the seventh in the series, and um, it, it feels so different to me than what came before that that I disagree with that, but reboot or reimagining is what I would go with. I have only seen the first two of the original series. And then I've seen obviously this new reimagining. Um, so I'm not sure how far it veered from it, but I can tell you that the, the antagonists are worlds different than they are in the first two. They're not like the inbred hillbillies there. It's something else. It's a different kind of hillbilly. <laughs> so yeah, um, I can, I can, it, it's, it is kind of weird to call it a sequel, but I've, like you, I've heard seventh installment, which I think that's a little misleading because it is kind of a reboot, which is weird because the original was what, 2003. Yep. So the fact that you're getting a reboot already, but hey, whatever. <laughs> 18 years later. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a difference. That's true. 2003 doesn't feel like 18 years ago, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they, they all have the same core concept of people making a wrong turn. So, I mean, it's not veering too far off the path, unlike its main characters. So true. So true. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, do I need to put a laugh track there so people know what you do? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we, we need to start having those like little radio zing noises and whatnot. Nick, um, let's start with the with the typical question. How'd you get started in the film industry? Um, I started pretty late in life. I went to film school here in Minneapolis when I was uh, 30 years old. And um, I'd had a, an interest in, in, I wouldn't even call it filmmaking, but uh, production a little bit prior to that. I'd gotten some opportunities to, to basically make some really boring industrial videos, which I won't bore you with, but essentially it involved shooting, recording audio, editing, kind of doing the whole picture and, and to some degree directing. Um, so I sort of got this, this, this 360 degree view of, of the basic process of making something. Um, and uh, that 
gave me a little bit of confidence to to go further and, and eventually go to film school uh, to be an editor at first. However, I, I started to enjoy uh, working with my fellow classmates on set, so to speak, and um, was really uh, stimulated by that collaboration process and found that I was pretty uh, capable at operating the camera. And uh, it quickly steered me towards uh, b- being a cinematographer and uh, trying to be on set with other people. You, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, you say you went to film school late in life when, when you were 30. What did you do before that? I mean, what, what kept you? Because I'm the same way. I went to film school late in life. Um, and it's because I wasted 15 years of my life trying to be a rock star. What did, were you following something else? Uh, you know, there's a similarity for me, too. I was in quite a few bands prior to doing that. It was, it was more for just the passion of it, in my case. Um, uh, also, I'm, I'm a lifelong motorcyclist, so I worked in that industry for a while and uh, was trying to figure out how to, to, to make a living with what I love to do and, and never really found that. Um, found that, like, going into a corporate environment was the, the antithesis of what worked for me as an individual. Um, so, so basically I, I, I sort of lived through my passions into my twenties and, um, always loved film, always loved, uh, to a degree dissecting it and, and noticing what worked and what didn't, but being a Minnesotan, which has almost no film or TV industry, uh, always felt like to work in, in film or TV or make a movie or something like that just felt like another universe, another, another galaxy, honestly. So I never really thought, oh, I could go make movies or I could make TV or, or tell stories. Um, but once I started doing the process, again, at, even at this rudimentary level of, of an industrial video or something, I still found that, oh, I like this process. I like shaping something into a cohesive message, for example. What were your favorite movies growing up? What, what movies made you fall in love with movies? Uh, I'm of that era that, that grew up on E.T. And, and Raiders of the Lost Ark and um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, um, of course, Star Wars and everything else. Um, I, would say, I would say Close Encounters of the Third Kind was probably the first film I saw as a young person that, like, that I really was hyper aware of, of how effective the lighting was, how effective the, the editing was, the, the, the application of, of uh, lens flares, that kind of thing. It, uh, it, it was stuff that I was noticing and I was really impressed with it. Um, so I, I would say that was probably the first film that, that kind of woke me up to being a more uh, conscious viewer. And so with Wrong Turn, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I think we we all liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of tonal shifts uh, with that movie. Yeah. I, I think we're going to try to avoid spoilers, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, especially with like, you know, the cinematography and the lighting and everything, there was some really big differences. And uh, especially in the later half, you used torches a lot. Um, what were some of the inspirations uh, behind some of those choices? Uh, for the fire lit scenes and such. Um, the first inspiration was the script. It was like, what is the script telling me it needs to make these scenes effective? Um, look wise, I, I wasn't honestly trying to, to adhere to something I had seen previously. I was really just trying to let the scenes and the script and ultimately the director tell me what it needed to be. Um, there was definitely some experimentation with, uh, how big are the torches? What are the torches uh, being ignited by? Meaning what type of gas? Um, and since we shot two different 
lens formats in the film, uh, it, it had to be a little bit different on how they applied to those two different lens formats because of the, the, the stop difference, the aperture difference in those lenses. Um, so yeah, it, it, there wasn't a film that I really looked at and said, this is how I want these scenes to look. Uh, there was some inspiration for a, a portion of that film that was in those fire lit environments uh, that came from the director, which was the Temple of Doom. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a scene where a certain character is wielding a, a red hot poker and uh, it's, it's, it's filmed uh, a little bit similar to the, that scene in Temple of Doom. Um, and certainly uh, Mike, the director, and I looked at that scene and were inspired by it for just the, the aesthetic quality of it as well. But I would say it was for myself as an individual anyway, it was sort of what does the script tell me it needs to, 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 to be or, or what does the scene need to, to look like and how does it need to be shot? What is the location offering me? And what capabilities do we have as a, as a crew to, to create like torches that are built from scratch, for example, and then with a uh, uh, practical effects supervisor who can make those uh, ignite safely and, and keep them lit, basically. Uh, not to take us too far off track, but um, there's a big scene in the middle of the film that takes place in, in a subterranean torch lit environment. And uh, it was quite a long scene that took several days to shoot really a series of scenes but they're sort of in this similar environment yeah. and uh learning how to work with torches that are that are sort of not con not constant in their their ambient output they're sort of they're lit they're bright for a while then they start to go down and you don't necessarily notice that immediately until you sort of take a look at monitors take a look at scopes on monitors and realize oh our, our ambient light has has been going down for the last two minutes for example um so it was it was really fun and challenging to figure out how to work with that type of a, a, a lighting instrument in a scene where you're shooting for really long periods of time. It wasn't just like, hey, a couple of shots and then we're moving on. It was like, we're here for days. This this scene is, is an ensemble scene with a bunch of characters. So how do we keep this look consistent um, and, and make our day? Um, there's one other scene that is lit exclusively with a torch. And uh, I was really excited to to do that test and then to, to see that work and, and, and see shots that, that I thought looked exactly the way we wanted them to. And was kind of amazed that like one torch did all the work. Um, it was a weird place for me as a cinematographer to, to work in that way and not be um, putting any more artificial light into a scene to make it look the way it did. It's like, this torch puts out the light we need the actor should hold it here and let's go and to see it succeed was really really fun for me were there any um any of those like barry linden super high speed lenses that you had to use to, to shoot in that low light you know the stanley uh, kubrick invented lenses sure totally uh, we shot the the torch light scenes almost exclusively on uh, some vintage anamorphic lenses and I should say the entire, every, every foundation scene, meaning every scene where the characters are sort of under the influence, under the law of the foundation, were shot on anamorphic lenses. Um, those lenses, because of how old they were, needed to be stopped down more. Their aperture needed to be stopped down more to, to achieve the sharpness that I thought was acceptable. Um, so we sort of had that working against us when we were working with Torchlight. 
in that you didn't necessarily have the the the, the hottest fastest lens available um like a like a former nasa lens like kubrick had um uh but what i was surprised by that that surprised me throughout the entire movie that was shot when it was shot at night or in torchlight was the uh the area Alexa mini that we shot that film on uh, just did a, such a great job of retaining shadow detail that I could shoot at a T4 aperture with primarily torch lit space and still achieve the exposure that I wanted. So I was really surprised by that, that, that camera package that it was able to give us that despite, despite a lens that had compromises, basically un, unlike the Barry Lyndon lens where they're shooting at like a T.95 or something like that. Gotta love the Alexa minis. It's great. Uh, back on the uh, screenplay, uh, which w- was written by Alan B. McElroy, who actually wrote the uh, first movie. Uh, did you get the chance to uh, talk with him about about the script or about the way those scenes were set? I did not. I have not met Alan. I, I would love to meet Alan. Um, Mike, the director, uh, communicated with Alan many times for many weeks leading up to uh, sort of the final draft of the script and production and everything. But um, uh, obviously he wasn't there during production. I think if it would have been in his, his region, he, he probably would have come or something, but uh, um, I, I didn't get a chance to meet him. I, I, I hope to someday. Um, I think he's a really interesting guy and I like the, 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 the daring transformation that he, he, did, he did to the, the franchise that he had a hand in starting. And speaking of, uh, have you seen any of the prior uh, wrong turn movies? Because, uh, yeah, they were up to six by the time uh, they made this one. Yep. Uh, I've only seen the first film and I saw that back around the time that it was released. Um, uh, I have not seen the sequels. I, I educated myself to some degree on what they uh, portrayed. Um but once I read the script and understood that basically Constantine films and Alan's script were just like wiping the slate clean so deliberately, didn't want to have any, um, you know, throwbacks to the previous films. Although there's a couple characters in there that have this similar names, but beyond that, it's just, it's kind of forget about what was before. This is totally different. This is, uh, uh, the subject is is quite different. The getting lost in the woods is the similarity, but as you've you've said, the the villains, the challenges that the characters deal with is so different that I didn't really feel like I needed to be uh, completely uh, caught up on what happened in every sequel after the first film. Now that you've completed your film and it's not going to influence you. I can tell you the second one is actually pretty awesome. <laughs> the yeah. second, it was Joe, Joe Lynch Lynch's. directed. Yeah. I've heard that. It's a lot of fun. I haven't seen any beyond that. And it's got Henry Rollins in a lead yeah. role. Yeah. I, I, I'm aware of that too. I, I should watch that one. I really need to actually, because I love it, Henry It's Rollins a lot too. of fun. Yeah. Henry Rollins gets to be a badass. And it's got some great kills. I mean, j- yeah. just the opening scene, opening like 10 <laughs> minutes is worth the price of admission. Yeah. Henry, Henry Rollins should be a badass on screen a lot more often than he is, I think. Oh, yeah. No, totally agreed. Now, uh, you worked with the uh, director uh, before, uh, I believe, right? On a couple of shorts or so? Yep. Uh, Mike and I live in the same metro area, and uh, we've been close collaborators for a long time. Um, uh, He and I have wanted to make a feature film together for quite a long time. Uh, We got to know each other through a mutual friend on a a commercial job, and then uh, I quickly got to know him and really enjoy his personality and what his passions were. And um, he's, he's 
completely committed to narrative as far as what he wants to do as an artist. And I hadn't really met anybody that was that serious at that point. Um, and uh, I was able to come on to a short film that he was making when we just started to get to know each other. And I was the first AC on that. And halfway through the film, the DP uh, got some commercial work and had to step out and things had been going well. And Mike uh, felt comfortable with me moving into the cinematographer's position. And uh, we completed that short film. It's called the retirement of Joe Corduroy. It's sort of a uh, uh, homage to death wish, um, which is a huge, uh, inspiration to Mike, a film he absolutely loves. Um, and from that point on, things had clicked so well that it was just, it was clearly the beginning of, of like, what's next? What are we going to do next? Let's, let's keep collaborating. Let's keep finding ways to, to build and get better at this, uh, our skill sets. So, um, and then, uh, uh, we had worked together on commercials at that point throughout. Uh, we worked together on what initially was a web series. That was the intention of it called the domestics. And um, we shot the first episode of that on a shoestring budget, but we were really happy with how it was going. And uh, because of the attention that Joe Corduroy had gotten prior, it had, it had won like a local film fest and somebody uh, originally from here who's now a producer in LA had showed it to some people out there. So it, it got Mike some attention and um, some meetings and the domestics uh, web series got transformed into a proof of concept. And uh, Mike started to pitch that in LA and got it and sold it to MGM as an idea for a feature and uh, went off to make that film. And then I, I unfortunately wasn't able to, to join that movie. It was, it was, uh, Mainly, I think, because Mike was a complete newcomer, kind of an unknown quantity at that point. And he was surrounded with veteran filmmakers by MGM, which I totally understand. Um, but it was still the momentum was still there. And it was like, we we have something here. Um, I think in both of our minds, we were thinking, I think we have what it takes to to go into a, a large narrative project and uh, succeed. Um so it was just all these little steps along the way that that sort of felt odd in the sense that being where we are from, it felt like you're just sort of on an island. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the perseverance obviously paid off and, and Mike was able to make his first feature. And then um, when he uh, got the job to make Wrong Turn, he had a little bit more influence to, to say, here's what I want to shoot the film. And he was taken seriously at that point. And then it, and then I was given a, a legitimate opportunity to pitch to shoot the film, and off we went at that point. Now back to the to the to the camera work and the camera look. What I the thing that struck me about about it is it reminded me a lot of. Have you seen you've seen Brian Bertino's The Strangers, right? Mm, I don't believe I have. It's uh, Liv Tyler and Scott Speed. Okay, it's um, it's basically a home invasion movie, and it's great. You should see it if you haven't. I know exactly what you're talking about. Mike has Mike. Nelson has mentioned that to me a couple times as well. The film that he's a big fan of. What struck me of it, the camera work is very similar in that. Now, how much of it was handheld or steady cam? Like there's subtle motion in just about every shot I noticed. And it's the same thing with the strangers. And it just gives you this unsettling, like, like the audience can't ever completely relax and they probably don't know why, but it's because there's just this subtle camera motion I mean, how much of it was steady cam or handheld? I would say about 90% was handheld. Um, and then we would uh, uh, bring it. Well, we had B camera, a B camera team for about 10 of the 26 days we shot the film. 
And uh, the operator of that B-cam uh, was often a Steadicam op. And we really only used the Steadicam when we, when we needed it, when it tonally had to be that way or uh, for a reason like you're out in the woods and laying down dolly track is just completely um, not fun. Uh, yeah, not fun and, and, and really just not conducive to the schedule, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was almost all handheld. And uh, we, we did that because tonally it, it made sense. And uh, uh, logistically, it made a ton of sense, too, in all these forested locations. Um, and contextually, the handheld can do a lot of different things. Uh, for example, early in the film, the friends are just sort of venturing into this environment they're together they're they're enjoying each other everything is great and handheld sort of has this serene quality at that point part of that has to do with uh shooting uh a little bit higher frame rate at times for a slow motion quality um but then contextually and with a little bit of subtlety in how the camera is being operated that handheld can completely shift your your perspective a different way um so it was it was a it was a creative decision and a logistic decision it's very effective uh one actually one other thing in on that point on the lens side um and not to get too technical but uh, we shot the film again on the area alexa mini which is a super 35 sensor um uh, you may have heard of large format cameras that's kind of a new uh it's not a new format but it's 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 a new wave in the digital side of of cinematic cameras that have a a bigger sensor, which means a different relationship to lenses and everything. Um, but we decided to make a 50 millimeter lens, uh, kind of our normal lens in the film. Whereas on a super 35 camera, typically a 35 millimeter lens would be your normal lens, meaning sort of a normal field of view, sort of a human perspective. We decided to make that tighter and longer um, to not only make the spaces feel a little bit more claustrophobic and closed off, um, but also to ramp up the intensity with the actors a little bit and, and be in their world more. Uh, we, we kind of have a, we had a conscious decision through the film to not uh, have the camera or the, or the perspective sort of step back and see all this happening. It was always intended to be from their perspective and, and have them have, have the, the audience's experience mirror the, the friends experience, the main characters experience experience without jumping back and um, maybe putting the viewer at ease by showing too much, letting the film breathe too much. Um, so it was a, there was an intention to just stay in there. And, and a lot of times the violence would be played out, for example, by the character's reaction to it, rather than um, focusing on just uh, the violence and not really putting a human context to it. Um, so, yeah. And speaking of the violence, uh, some of my favorite, because uh, well, I, I think it kind of keeps the tradition alive. Like, I love that all the death traps in the Wrong Turn series, and there were some really good ones in this one. So I wanted to ask kind of how you shot some of those. Sure. Um, it was kind of a mixed bag, depending on what it was. Uh, there's one particular trap in the film that's that's just a, a kind of a horrifying, heavy uh, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's a it's a large, heavy weighted trap that you would not want to fall on. You. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a that was a case where we we brought a large uh, jib arm into the woods because we had to do this this shot around that trap, which is sitting 15, 20 feet above our actors. Um, so that was a case where we, we where we deviated from the handheld, for example, and did that. Uh, there was another trap that uh, is a is a big, deep 
spike trap that's you know something you'd you'd fall maybe six to eight feet before you'd even hit the spikes kind of a thing if you were unlucky enough to stumble across it um and uh that was a combination of setting up some dolly track and, and again deviating from the handheld to get the angles we needed to get and then obviously there's stunt performers involved that are intercutting with the the actors too um yeah other traps let's see here do you have did you have any other specific questions on uh, anything you saw in there that you wanted to know how we shot it or oh yeah like the uh well there's a uh rolling log trap uh yes okay you interested in hearing about that one yeah yeah because <laughs> that, that was part. sort of the <laughs> that, <laughs> that was... came out of nowhere <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> that was the first of all that scene was sort of the looming elephant in the room throughout pre-production because it was like this is the the big vfx part of the film uh there's a lot of money being spent here there's not going to be a tremendous amount of time to shoot it how do we how do we shoot this effectively again adhering to this sort of character centric perspective and not necessarily pulling back to some large aerial shot where you're seeing people scattering and a log coming and everything um uh, the log, the the rolling log was completely uh, CGI. Um, we had a Technicolor uh, supervisor on set th- uh, that uh, helped us understand what he needed to do this, the, the scene correctly. Um, it was a big stunt scene as well with uh, stunt doubles for all the main characters um, hurling th- themselves down these hillsides. It was, it was a tricky scene because it, it involved so many different types of shooting Um, because of the schedule of the film, some of the more elaborate plans I had for it, I had to sort of shuffle around and, and and eliminate in some cases. Um, There's a shot that was, I thought pretty critical that probably looks like a Steadicam shot uh, leading Charlotte Vega, who plays Jen down this hill. She looks back, we rack focus to this log that's not actually there, but to, to, to have a very, again, sort of intimate shot that's really going to show her terror in relation to it. And um, that was a, a gimbal. In this case, it was a Ronin 2 gimbal, which is basically a, looks like a large sort of square piece of tube with a camera floating in the middle of it that is designed to eliminate shake and, um, and shocks going through the camera body. And then a second person can be operating that camera within that gimbal on a joystick so they can pan and tilt and look around and the other person or people can just focus on moving that gimbal. Um, and we had like a long piece of uh, speed rail, it's called with, with two big, strong uh, grip technicians on either end running down this hillside with this thing hanging in the middle and, and Charlotte Vega running towards it. Um, that was a pretty tricky shot. I initially intended that to be uh a cable cam shot where you literally run steel cables through the woods tree to tree. And you can have a a camera that's suspended on a motorized machine, essentially that can zip down that cable as you want. Um, uh, Due to the schedule of the film, it just, it didn't make sense. I knew once we started to get into the nitty gritty of it and started to understand uh, how much stunt work we needed to shoot too, that it became much uh, more wise to focus on, the quantity of shots we needed rather than slow down the whole production for, for example, a cable cam shot that's going to be on screen for 1.3 seconds, you know, 
And you were saying earlier uh, that this was all shot in the woods on location. You got jibs out there. You got rodents out there. You got all these rails. How much of a hassle was it getting all this equipment out there? Like, uh, and were you guys like really actually deep in the woods or were you just like off a trail a little bit? Like what was some of that? It, it depended on where we were shooting. I would say most of the forest shooting was fairly accessible by like, you know, a fire road that could get pretty close to where we needed to be, where you could get like stake bed trucks in there kind of a thing. You couldn't bring like full grip trucks up to a lot of those locations, oh, but, um, poor grips. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they did such an awesome job. Uh, but, I, I really tried to scale the camera and grip electric part of it to fit that the best that I could, meaning I would try to choose locations that didn't require me to bring a bunch of lighting equipment into the woods. And I would often just choose locations that had a, a heavier tree canopy overhead, for example, so that as we're shooting from, you know, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., obviously a huge change in light and there's going to be partly cloudy and, and all sorts of stuff um, that, that I would be able to sort of maintain a consistent ambient look. And I could always just move actors a little bit if there was like a hard piece of sunlight coming right down at them. And uh, that wouldn't force me as well to always shoot a certain direction to work with the sun. Um, we could shoot sort of 360 um, as we needed to because uh, it, it just was clearly the flexible choice we needed to have for the film. Um, but we did, we did shoot uh, several days where literally the entire production moved to a different part of Ohio. And, uh, it was in this, uh, it wasn't a, it was right next to a state park. It was a, it was a privately owned, um, camping park where we then did have to hike in. It was like probably a 20 minute hike to get to set every day and back out. And, uh, that's where shooting handheld completely came in handy. Uh, we did bring in some, some led lights that were battery powered if we needed them. Um, but, uh, I was, I was really open to, uh, within reason, letting the look be what it was, um, because the the spaces were beautiful. The the the, the conditions uh, would let us shoot flexibly and and still have a nice looking image. And uh, I just was I, I was conscious throughout to not hamstring what we were trying to do to get a bunch of gear up there that wasn't really going to add a whole lot to it. Um, yeah, I tried to save that for the scenes that really, really needed to be lit. Yeah, because I've done a lot of grip work, and it's always, the whenever I see outdoor thing, I'm like, ooh, hey, production, what is this looking like, bud? Because I don't, <laughs> don't want to be trucking that much by on my back. <laughs> what about the cave scenes? Were those actually shot in caves, or was that on a soundstage somewhere? Those were real tunnels underneath this 100-plus-year-old uh, okay. brewery in Cincinnati. So that was like right right in Cincinnati proper, not quite, I wouldn't say downtown, but it was in right in the urban center. Um, really cool space that had had uh, a handful of movies come through and shoot there before. Um, it was just a, a very, I guess I'll say charismatic space in the, in the grit and the grime that it had in it, but it was just filthy and the air was terrible. Um, so it needed to be clean to a degree. We had to have like a ventilation system put into that place because we were going to get, again, be in there for days. Um, Unfortunately, that location, that, that entire building burned down like three or four months after we shot there. So Whoa. I think we might have been the last feature to shoot in that place. It was, it was like oh, kind man. of a national news story because it was oh. such an inferno. It was just, it was just wild. But um, it was a really cool space. You had to go 
it was at, you were at least 23 20 to 30 feet below street level when you were down there and there were there were places in that area that that you'd just be walking and of course we had these cordoned off eventually but you'd be walking and you just realize there's like a 30 foot just hole to nowhere in that place it was a really interesting location um we shot a bunch of stuff there too we shot um obviously the, the the obvious tunnel scenes but uh there's there's a scene where one character is sort of stuck in a pit and there's another character at the top of the pit um and it takes place at a couple different periods of time but that was shot right there we uh, and that was actually shot at night too which was a cool challenge we shot a, a scene that felt like midday and uh it was shot at like two in the morning you know so it was fun to shoot a scene where you're supposed to be looking up at the sky but really you just have a light blue fabric over the top of the actor and you're lighting her appropriately and it's and it's two in the morning so um actually one other story about that location uh, as far as lighting um, the awesome art department of that film had built these really cool chandeliers that I could send you photos of if you wanted to see them. Uh, because my initial lighting plan for those tunnels was to build these chandeliers. They were really cool, just covered in antlers. Just There was probably like 20 sets of antlers on one of them. And within that would be this, was there this wooden box that was just the right size to hold a, an airy sky panel an S30 sky panel, which is a, basically a one by one, really cool LED light, but really heavy light. And we were going to hang those in one of the main chambers that you guys obviously saw. Um, and that would help me basically create and maintain ambient light in that space. And modern LEDs can do a fire flicker effect and everything. So it, it would have been fairly natural. Um, we had a, a structural engineer come in, tell us where we could mount them, how we could mount them and everything. And they mounted one fell right away it tore a piece of the ceiling out so we had to uh rethink a little bit how we were going to shoot that or light that scene because i no longer had this this uh light up in the sky that i would never trip over would never be in the way anything like that so that was a that was a cool challenge and it, i think it still turned out well it did slow things down a little bit more but it kind of went from that plan to suddenly you're you're working with a bunch of lights on the floor and uh, one of the scenes is, is, I don't want to spoil it's, it's a, it's an ensemble scene with a lot going on. Um, and you're in the cameras looking all directions and turning around and there's, and it, there's so many people to, to cover that, uh, that was a challenge to sort of have to scrap that idea and go in a different direction. Um, visually I'm really happy with it, but logistically it was, it was a bit of a challenge for sure. We're running low on time here, but there's one shot that I really want I really want you to talk about, and it's fitting that, that this might be the last thing we talk about because it's the last shot of the movie. And without spoiling anything, the last shot is the one that sticks with you. And it almost, it looks like it might be one of the easiest to get, but that's probably deceptive. How, that last shot, how, do you, how did you approach that? Knowing that the credits are going to be coming up over this shot. Yeah, um, that, that shot was uh, an alternate ending to the film that was that was conceived of only a, maybe a week to 10 days before we shot that. So it was during the film that this was conceived of. Uh, Mike Nelson, the director, and uh, Robert Culzer of Constantine had both been thinking about um, what about a different ending that sort of takes the film in another direction with the intention of uh, trying to figure out what an audience would like the most, essentially. Um, so we, we got the green light to do this shot. 
which was kind of shocking because there was no intention of uh, that kind of carnage or anything mm -hmm. at that point. <laughs> and um, essentially it was two shots. Um, as you might imagine, if you broke it down is it looks like one shot, but um, because of the, 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 the dangerous visceral nature of the first part of the shot, you obviously couldn't have actors and, and everybody involved in that moment. Um, and so it's essentially two shots stitched together. And it was just this, this weird experience because it lasts minutes. And uh, there's a, there's a stunt performer, for example, that, that is face down on, on hot tar for minutes dead. Who's just sort of laying there. And it, it was just, a, it was an interesting uh, experience to shoot. Uh, if you have any other questions specifically about it, I'm happy to answer them, but if, I, I just don't want to spoil it. That's, I kind of, right. mm. yeah. So is there another ending? Did you shoot another ending or there is, that was originally the, the ending. So what you guys have seen is the alt ending that became the ending. Which one is about five, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is cool. I really enjoyed it because you guys didn't do like a happy death. They was super guilty of like doing a complete wrap up and then going, Oh no, we're not done yet. But what I liked what you guys did, it was like, Oh, this could have ended here, but I'm glad it didn't. Like it just like, it kept mm -hmm. going. And I will say the original ending is essentially what you saw. If that last piece didn't happen. Uh, okay. If it, if, uh, okay. if they just kept going, let's say, yeah, it was a, it was a fun scene to shoot. Uh, I think it was a, a really interesting, cool way to end the film that, that also makes a lot of sense to, to keep that door open for a sequel. Yeah, that it does. Okay, great. Well, Nick, thank you very much for joining us yes. today. Um, yep. This is, you're the first cinematographer we've had on. We've had composers and producers and, you know, but this is a great talk. I'm yeah. so excited to be here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I always love watching talking tech <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where can people uh keep up with you do you have a twitter or some kind of social media if they want to know what's next for nick junkersfield i pretty much just hang out on instagram right now um and and junkersfeld is my instagram handle um i'm pretty active on there um I, i'm thinking about going back to twitter but right now it's instagram and uh yeah you can you can keep up with my exploits there cool uh well thanks again for joining us um our theme music is by Restless Spirit, so go give them some love. Our artwork is by Chris Fisher, so go give him some love. Um, you can find us at any of our socials, the Ion Horror. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, there's a letterbox page now that Korea made. Um, I just make lists. <laughs> you can also find us at <laughs> iHorror.com uh, and the iHorror Facebook page. We're not hard to get a hold of. So um, yeah, thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks for joining us to the audience for listening to us. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. So for me, James J. Edwards. I'm Jacob Davison. I'm Jonathan Korea. I'm Nick Junkersfeld. Keep your eye on horror. <laughs>